a long obedience in the same direction, Eugene Peterson writes this. One aspect of the world that I have been able to identify as harmful to Christians is the assumption that anything worthwhile can be acquired all at once. We assume that if something can be done at all, then it can be done quickly and efficiently. Our attention spans have been conditioned by 30-second commercials. Our sense of reality has been flattened by 30-page abridgments. It is not difficult in such a world to get a person interested in the message of the gospel. It is terribly difficult to sustain that interest. Millions of people in our culture make decisions for Christ, but there's a dreadful attrition rate. Many claim to be born again, but the evidence of Christian discipleship is slim. There's a great market for religious experience in our world. And yet there is little enthusiasm for the patient acquisition of virtue. Little inclination to sign up for a long apprenticeship in what earlier generations of Christians called a life of holiness. That assessment that Eugene Peterson writes about, and he identifies in our day is a similar assessment that Paul writes about seeking to help Timothy navigate in his day. We've reached the final section of Paul's letter to Timothy. And in this final section, Paul gives encouragement to Timothy on how to finish the race. It seems as though Timothy was no stranger to having a desire to throw in the towel. Timothy was in a difficult situation that he wasn't suited well for. His timid personality, his physical frailty, those things didn't bode well for the circumstances that were facing him at the church in Ephesus. He was called to confront false teachers who had risen up in the ranks of the Ephesian leaders He was dealing with the heartache of professing Christians who were abandoning the faith. He was being judged by, uh, because of his youthfulness from older saints, he had to make clear the qualifications for those who were to lead God's people. He had to provide clarity to the confusion around the roles of each gender when the church gathered together. The church had to know what it was like to live in community what it was like to be the household of the living God, what it was like to be the buttress and the support of truth. And while all of that is worthwhile, none of that comes easily or quickly. None of it. The Christian life is not merely about starting well. Christian life is also about finishing well. And as Paul is wrapping up this letter to young Timothy, his concluding words are about finishing well. How do you finish well? How do you give yourself to a life of holiness? How do we walk in a long obedience in the same direction? I wonder this morning what life has thrown at you 
over the last few days or weeks or months. I wonder if you are familiar with the desire to sort of throw in the towel. It just doesn't seem worth it. If that's you this morning, I've prayed for you. I've prayed that you would lean into Paul's words that are meant, that are meant to, to be an encouragement to help you and I persevere in the faith. And Paul's going to do this by reminding us mainly of two things. Paul's going to help us persevere in the faith by reminding us of who we are and reminding us of who God is. Being his children and beholding him, that's the essence of fighting the good fight of faith. Being his children and beholding him, that's the essence of finishing the race well. Both of these are vital, and I'm praying, and I have been praying, that both of these would be clear this morning as we approach the Word of God. And so if you would pray with me as we open the Word, that would be a good place to start. Our holy God, I am well aware of the task that is before me in rightly dividing your truth well aware of the task that is in front of us being a people who are shaped by your truth who are joyfully submissive to your truth who seek to turn from sin to find life in your truth so I pray that over the next few minutes you would allow us to not sit over your truth but that we would humbly place ourselves under your truth. And I pray that your truth would change us. I pray that we would behold wonderful things in your word. You would allow us to see how Christ is the hope. And so show each of us our need for Christ anew this morning, whether for the first time for the thousandth time already today. Shape us, change us, make us more like Christ. And for that to happen, I'm well aware that the sermon that is heard must be far more effective than the one that is preached. Lord, help this little manuscript. I pray this for your glory. I pray this for our good. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. If you have your Bibles, I would invite you to open to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. If you are needing a Bible, please feel free to, to use uh, one in the pew back in front of you. If you use the New American Standard, which is what I will be preaching from, you can find it in the New Testament, the back half of the that Bible on page 165. Two sermon points this morning, and those sermon points will have a few subpoints to them. So uh, I, I just want to encourage us. Um, stay the course. No, I just want to encourage us as we're working our way through this. It would be easy to, to try to 
Uh, I've, I've tried it all week to diagram where Paul is going and how it all fits together. And I'm just asking for you this morning to listen. In, in many ways, uh, this happened the other day as one of my daughters was getting ready to uh, travel for a volleyball trip for the first time and just sort of saying to her before she left our, our possession, uh, okay, this is what you need to do. You need to remember this and do this and do this. And so as Paul is coming to the end of this letter, what you have are just very important but seemingly scattered admonitions, encouragements. Remember this, Timothy, and don't forget this. And, 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 and I want to make sure you, you keep this before you. And so uh, my encouragement to us is as we're m- making our way through and we're seeing how this fits together, allow and just ask the Spirit, what would you show me? What is it in these final words that I need that I need to hang on? What is it that I need growth in? Where is it that I need to conform my life to the pattern of your word? So two sermon points. The first one is this, who we are to be. Who we are to be. He's writing to Christians. And so this is a good reminder this morning. If you are a Christian... This is who you are to be. If you look back at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11, the very first word there is but. And that but marks a major shift in the direction of the letter. And so the contrast is being set. And it's being set, and we know that because of the word but. If we were to go back and look at verses 3 through 10 of chapter 6, we are to see that how these false teachers were and who they were That's to be different than how Timothy and how other pastors who would stand in the vein of Timothy and in the lineage of Timothy, and then in all Christians who would stand under the influence of faithful pastors. And so the contrast is set. The false teachers, verses 3 through 10, are to be markedly different than those who belong to Christ. Genuine Christians ought to look different than the description of the false teachers in verses 3 3 through 10. And again, it's helpful for us to remember as we read these words, these are words that were written to Timothy, the spheres of application then began to broaden. And it's not just that we're watching a conversation happen between Paul and Timothy. We're being invited into this conversation And there's application. There's application for pastors, but there's also application for every Christian. And I believe the ESV rightly orders the opening words of this passage when this is put together. But, providing a contrast, as for you, O man of God. And so the but there in verse 11 is meant to grab our attention to say, ah, something is different. And if the but is meant to grab our attention in verse 11, then the phrase man of God is meant to just stop us in our tracks. It's stunningly dramatic. That phrase is only used one other time in the New Testament, man of God. It's in in Paul's second letter to Timothy when he says that all scripture is breathed out by God and it's profitable 
So that why? So that every man of God may be equipped for good works. But all throughout the Old Testament, that phrase, man of God, it was used of saints who were, who were exemplary in their service to God. Man of God was used to, to, to mark out and to distinguish Moses from others. It was used to talk about Samuel and Elijah and Elisha and David. And so just by referring to Timothy as man of God, Paul is placing him in a lineage of saints who, who did two things really well. They shepherded God's people and they instructed God's word. And that's what Paul wants to say. He wants to end this letter and he wants Timothy to know that you are standing in a lineage of faithful shepherds and faithful proclaimers. And that's to mark your ministry. Paul's reminding Timothy about the fundamental reality of his identity. He says, remember the, the men of gold in verses 3 through 10? That's not to be you, Timothy. You are to be a man of God. Who Timothy is will inform the behaviors and the practice that follow. I'm helped by Alistair Begg, who says Paul is keenly aware of Timothy's limitations. He's comparatively young, he's naturally timid, he's physically frail, and yet he encourages him with his identity. Fellow Christian, drink in this truth. If you are too easily discouraged at your limitations, remember first your identity. You've received a divine commission. You've been enlisted in God's service. You've been called for God's purposes that you might give God glory. The reality of who we are in God, the, re the reality of our identity, it gives way to our activity. It informs our activity. And that order is everything. Our activity doesn't give way to our identity. Our identity gives way to our activity. Your activity doesn't earn. Your activity doesn't make you favorable before God. Your activity... We could say your activity earned you something. But it's not favor with God. It's wrath from God. The Christian faith is not opposed to effort. The Christian faith is opposed to earning. And so our activity doesn't earn us favor with God. It doesn't make us right before God. God makes us right and gives us identity because of the work of his son, Jesus the Christ. That doesn't mean that the Christian life is to, is to be void of any good works. No, the Christian life ought to be full of good works. Ephesians 2.10 tells us that we were 
redeemed so that we would walk in those good works that he has prepared beforehand. And so then what activity are we called to? Well, he gives us five actions that we're called to. Five actions that if we are going to be who we are called to be as followers of Christ, these things, they must mark our lives. First, we see the, the call to flee from these things. Flee these things. Look at verse 11. But flee from these things, you man of God. Flee is to run away from. Flee is not to jog away from. It's not to briskly walk away from. Flee has a sense of urgency to it. Flee is a purposeful, dedicated, focused turning away from. It's running from. Oftentimes we equate fleeing as the opposite of fighting. And we think, well, if you're a fleer, then you're not a fighter. But fleeing in the Christian life is a part of the fight. We can't fight if we don't flee. wonder this morning, if you assess your life, is your life marked by consistent fleeing from these things? And you say, well, Justin, what are these things? These things are the things that he's already mentioned in describing the false teachers in verses 3 through 10. So he says, you man of God, those who belong to God, you are to flee from these things. Flee from pride. Flee from ignorance. Flee from envy. Flee from strife. Flee from evil suspicions. Flee from thinking that godliness is a means to get rich. Flee from the love of money. Flee from these things. And perhaps you're here and you're not a Christian. You're thinking, yep, this is it. I'm very well aware of this pitch by the Christian faith. Flee from everything that I want to do because Christianity is about not having fun. So I just, to flee it all, and just show up here every Sunday and think that this is the best that life has to offer. Can I just encourage you, when God says don't, he's not saying don't have fun. When God says don't, he's saying don't hurt yourself. His prohibitions are not meant to keep you from joy. His prohibitions are meant to ensure that you walk the path that actually gets you there. The goal of this world, the goal of Satan, the goal of the flesh, kind of the sinful nature that we are each born with, come into this world hardwired with, the goal of each of those things, the world around us, the enemy, Satan, and the flesh, that which is in us, we're hardwired. The goal of each of those is to rob us of joy. It's to ensure that we pursue the wrong thing so that we get to the end of our lives and we're destined for an eternity away from the God that we were created for. It's to enslave you to destructive habits, to steal joy-producing fruit. 
the goal of the world and the flesh and the enemy, it's to ruin you. And so when we hear don't coming from God, that's a means of grace. Him calling us to abstain from that which wages war against our souls. Think of the animal that you're most afraid of. You're walking down the street, you turn the corner, and there's the animal. What do you do? Now listen, I don't care what Bear Grylls says, I don't care what you're supposed to do when you find face-to-face with a bear on a trail. You flee. You run. You make a decided break. You don't grin and bear it. You don't crawl. You don't sort of flirt with it. No. You run. And those who belong to God, throughout his word, he says, flee. 1 Timothy 6, flee from sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians 6, flee from sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians 10, flee from idolatry. Later on in 2 Timothy, flee from youthful passions. Flee. I'm helped by Phil Riken, who said there's more to avoiding sin, however, than simply being in a hasty retreat. If all we do is run away from one sin, we will run right into the arms of another. The human heart is like a popular ride at the amusement at the amusement park. Sins are lined up at the entrance waiting for a chance to get on and to enjoy the ride. And Satan is happy for a sin to get off provided that another sin can climb on board. So a man finally masters sexual temptation but then he becomes a glutton. A woman learns to control her tongue but she harbors proud and jealous thoughts. Real growth and godliness means more than just trading one sin in for another. It means replacing the don'ts with the do's. It means getting rid of the vices and replacing them with virtues. It means developing the complete character that enables a Christian to serve God well in this world. If you and I flee, but we have nothing better than the sin that we're fleeing from to run to, It's only a matter of time before we return, which leads us then to our second action. It's not just flee these things, but secondly, pursue godly virtue. Pursue godly virtue. Again, look at verse 11. But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. And so if you're, you're here this morning and you're like, I know I shouldn't be following that sin. I just don't know where I need to turn. I don't know what it is I'm, I need to be running towards. Well, Paul serves you well this morning by giving you six virtues to pursue. He begins by saying, pursue righteousness. Pursue conforming all of your life to all that God desires. And so go through the word and just what is it that, that pleases the heart of God? And whatever that is, that's what I want to pursue. That's what I want to mark my life. Seek moral integrity. 
And do not be moved from what is right in God's sight. But it's not just righteousness. Pursue godliness. Pursue true, intimate, real fellowship with God. Be marked by a genuine loyalty and faithful, consistent worship to God. Godliness has value in this life. We've already read about in 1 Timothy 4, 7. It has life in the one to come. And so, be a God-like man because you are a man who loves your God. Pursue righteousness. Pursue godliness. So you've already put away sin and you're turning to lay hold of God. He mentions faith. Pursue faith. He's not talking merely about the initial saving faith. He's not telling Timothy, he's not telling us that we have to go get saved yet again. Not the initial saving faith, but the continual dependence upon the Lord. The faith to trust His promises. The faith to, to know that when the world says, this is where joy is found, but I read that God's Word says joy is found here, Pursue faith that says, though I can't see, I'm willing to lay hold and trust. Pursue not putting confidence in the flesh, but put it in Christ. Abandon your own resources to lay yourself on the promises and the provision of God. But not just righteousness and godliness and faith. Fourthly, he says, pursue love. Pursue love, the virtue that binds all other virtues together, love. And the word there is agape. It's an intentional kind of love. It's not a love that, that you pursue because people around you are worthy. No, it's the type of love and the kind of love that Christ demonstrated in pursuing you. A love that stoops to those that are undeserving. A love that goes low to the unworthy. A love that isn't promised that there will be anything in return. Pursue that kind of love. But he also mentions endurance. Steadfastness. Perseverance. Pursue patience and perseverance and steadfastness. Each of those bring to mind a picture of a difficulty. Don't throw in the towel because it's hard. Pursue perseverance. I do not like running, but talking to people who like running and who like running for a long time, which I don't know why... (laughs) You would say, you don't look at a marathon and just say, I've got to run all of this. You sort of break it down. And in the same way, persevere. Persevere. And then lastly, pursue gentleness. Pursue being kind, not harsh. 
pursue being holy in the sight of God and humble in your interactions with others. Have a gravity about you because of the glory of God and have a gladness about you. You get to live with others. Think of the person that you love most. Now imagine you take the same walk where you turn the corner and you found the scariest animal. And surprisingly, you take the same walk and you turn the corner and you find the person there that you love and adore most. Is your response to them different? Of course it is. You don't flee from them. You run towards them. You pursue. You lay hold of them. And in the same way, Paul reminds Timothy, flee from that which will pull you away from God and pursue, run to that which will bring you closer to him. Are you daily fleeing your sin? Are you daily pursuing virtue? We are to flee, we are to pursue third action. We are to fight the good fight of faith. Fight the good fight of faith. Verse 12. I take this point literally from verse 12. Fight the good fight of faith. It's easy to go through life and to live oblivious or grossly forgetful of the fact that there is a cosmic spiritual battle that is waging all around us. I'm helped by the way John Piper speaks of this. He says, life is war. But most people do not believe this in their heart. Most people show by their priorities and their casual approach to spiritual things that they believe that we are in peacetime, not wartime. In wartime, the newspapers carry headlines about how the troops are doing. In wartime, families talk about the sons and daughters on the front line. They write to them. They pray for them with heart-wrenching concern for their safety. In wartime, we are on the alert. We are armed. We are vigilant. In wartime, we spend our resources differently. Because there are more strategic ways to use our resources and to leverage our lives... The wartime effort touches everything and touches everybody. Paul's reminder to Timothy to fight the good fight of faith is a good reminder for us that there is a battle that we are meant to engage in. And I'm sure if I were to sit down with all of us, we could talk about some battle that we've engaged in over the last few days or weeks, I just wonder if they are to the right battles. Paul reminds Timothy that Christians are to be fighting the good fight of faith. What does that mean? What does it mean to fight the good fight of faith? If you read Paul's writings elsewhere, he talks about finishing the race well. Finishing the race well and fighting the good fight of faith, he's talking about the same thing. We are to continue to wage war against sin in anything that would rob us of our affections for God and our obedience to God. And we are to continue to trust in God and seek to grow in our knowledge of God and seek to grow in our love for God. That's the good fight of faith. 
saying no to that which is destroying you and saying yes to that which promises life to you. And so who do we fight? I mentioned, I mentioned it earlier. We fight the world. We fight the flesh. We fight the devil. We, we see this in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Just listen again. The world, the flesh, and the devil. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. So you were dead in your sins because you were walking according to the course of this world. First enemy. According to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. According to the prince of the power of the air, the one who has temporary reign because of the sinfulness of man, the enemy. Verse 3 Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh our sinful desires, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Paul brings to mind these two, these Ephesian believers in another letter, these three enemies of the Christian. Paul tells him, tells the Ephesian believers that like them, he too once served in the army of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And in serving in that army, you are spiritually dead. And because you did serve in that army, there was a payment that you incurred because you were a soldier in that army, and that payment was death. You were by nature children of wrath, death, But Paul writes and he says, but God has now made me alive through faith in Christ. If you have turned from your sin and trusted in Christ, you have now changed sides. The one who you used to war against, you now war with. Christ has become the captain of the Christian. And now he's engaged in this fight, not fighting against the God that he's accountable to, but fighting for him. And so how then are we to fight? Well, 1 John 2.15 tells us, do not love the world, nor the things in the world. And so we fight the world by denying loves and seeking a greater love that isn't found in this world. Romans 8.13 This is how we fight the flesh, put to death the things of the flesh. We don't feed. We don't give, we don't make room. We don't make provision. We don't give room to sinful desires. And Ephesians 4.27 lets us know how to fight against the enemy. We don't give him an opportunity. 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9 says we resist him, standing firm in the faith. The one who belongs to God, he keeps the ground that Christ has already won and captured. 
And he does it by continuing to fight the good fight of faith. How is your fight going? You see, we're not given the option to wake up in the morning and say, ah, I feel like I'm going to, I feel like I'm going to fight today. No, we're not given that option. Life and death hang in the balance. How is your warfare progressing? Are you putting the flesh to death? Are you fighting to love God more than you love the things of this world? Are you fighting to stand your ground and not give the enemy a foothold? I mean, this will affect everything. It affects your thought life. It affects what you do when no one's looking. It affects how you interact with others. It affects everything. You have died to sin and to self. And you now live with Christ. He in you. And Christ, his life has shown, he does not lay down on the job and sort of go apathetic towards sin. Neither can we. Leads to the fourth action. Take hold of eternal life. Take hold of eternal life. So it's not just fight the good fight of faith. You may be asking, well, how do you know if you won the good fight of faith? What's the crown of the good fight of faith? He continues in verse 12. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called... And you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. He's seeking and he's grabbing in this fight. He's seeking and he's grabbing for the crown of eternal life. Eternal, unending. Always. Never ending. The great deception in our life is thinking that this life is the real life. And it's the one that we ought to be most zealous for. When you compare this life to eternal life, it's silly that we would throw everything into a life that literally looks like a vapor, a mist. Here for a moment. The Bible tells us that eternal life, it's not only long, but it's abundant life. I'm laying hold, we're seeking to lay hold of the crown of eternal life, not just life forever in the presence of God where there's fullness of joy, which if we just stop to consider that more often, we would say no to the things of this world. But it's not just longevity, it's also quality. Jesus says this in John 10.10. 10, the thief comes to only to steal, kill, and destroy. I come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Eternal life, abundant life is true life that's filled to the brim, that's overflowing with every spiritual blessing that comes to us through Christ. It's a rich, meaningful, swelling, gushing, flowing over kind of life. That's what we read in John 17, 3. Eternal life is knowing and having and enjoying God. 
And praise be to God. Praise be to God that he secured this. He secured the kind of life that you and I can never attain. And he secured it by absorbing the best blow that sin and death had. He exhausted the wrath of God. He expired in a moment so that those who were deserving of God's wrath, those who would expire forever, may live forever. It's the absurdity of grace. How in the world could a people who were deserving of his wrath receive his affection? How could people who would not give him affection be the recipients of his affection? And how could people who would expire under his wrath be be pardoned from his wrath? And not just pardoned from his wrath, but showered and lavished with love and forgiveness and mercy and grace. How in the world could this happen? It could only happen if there is a God who loves himself and his glory and his people. And praise be to God, that is the God of the scriptures. And praise be to God, that is the work that he has done in sending Christ. Because for every one of us who were hardwired to be at war against God, there is a grace, there is a rewiring that can take place on the other side of confessing your sin and believing in the work of Jesus as the sufficient work for you. And so if you're not a Christian here this morning, I just want to plead with you. It doesn't matter how dark your past is. It doesn't matter how long your list of sins are. What matters is whether you are willing to come to the end of yourself. To confess your sin, to hate your sin, to flee from your sin. And to turn in humble dependence upon the work of Christ and say, I will place everything believing that that work will earn me what I could never earn. If you have questions, you desire that, talk to anyone before you leave. Respond to that message by turning from sin and believing in Christ. And then Paul calls Timothy to remember the confession that he made in the presence of many witnesses. This isn't just sort of a private thing that, that Timothy makes, uh, a private decision that Timothy makes, and then he goes on his life, and people really don't even know who he belongs to. Now, most scholars believe that he's speaking about that, that confession that was made in the public of many is his baptism. And so there's this public identification with the one who you are trusting in. Take hold of eternal life, abundant life, and praise be to God, those that are undeserving of eternal abundant life can have it because of Christ. Leads to the last action. He says in verse 13, keep the commandment. Keep the commandment. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord 
Jesus Christ. Keep the commandment. What commandment? Seems to be he's telling Timothy to keep everything that he has laid before him. Hold fast to the faith. And then he tells him to think of Jesus' confession before Pilate. As the cross was being prepared, Jesus was confessing that he was the king of the Jews and that his kingdom was not of this world. And Jesus made that confession, and that confession would cost him his life. And Paul says, Timothy, if you're willing to quit because it gets hard, remember, Jesus stayed true to the confession and it cost him his life. If you belong to God, stay true to the confession, even if it costs you your life. And our Christian brothers and sisters in Afghanistan are teaching us a great lesson about this, even as I speak. Keep the commandment. Hold fast the confession. How long? He says it in verse 14. Until Christ appears. The way that we keep the confession, the way that we keep the commandment is to keep that day in mind. This world is not all there is. And so the horizon that we're constantly looking to is the second coming, the return of Christ. And so until that day, we fight and we run and we wrestle and we grab hold of eternal life. Keep fighting, Timothy. Do not give up. Keep fighting, Christian. Do not give up. Your Savior is coming. He will make an appearance. As Martin Luther said, you live as if Christ died yesterday, he rose this morning, and he's returning tomorrow. There's no respite here. There's no folding of the hands, a little more sleep. If you are a Christian, peacetime is coming, but peacetime is not here now. So fight the good fight of faith. Don't give up. James 1.12, blessed is the man who perseveres under trial because once he has been proven, uh, once he's been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord promised to those who love him. Revelation 2.10, be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. Again, I appreciate what John Piper said. One of the reasons there's so little deep, earnest, passionate concern for godliness in the contemporary church is that this truth is so little understood. The truth, namely, that eternal life is laid hold of only by a persevering fight of faith. There is today, by and large, a devil-may-care, cavalier, superficial attitude towards the ongoing daily intensity of personal faith because people do not believe that their eternal life depends on it. The last 200 years has seen an almost incredible devaluation in the fight of faith. Piper says, we are, we've moved 100 miles from Pilgrim's Progress, where the Christian labors and struggles and fights all of his life until he is safe in the celestial city. Oh, how different is the biblical view of the Christian life from the one that is prevalent in the American church. Can you do it? Can you keep the commandment? You can't. But Christ did. 
You need his performance. You need the empowering of the Holy Spirit to help you stand going forward. And so if you are ready and willing to throw in the towel, weary sojourner, brother and sister in Christ, look unto Jesus. He fled vice. He pursued virtue. He fought the good fight. He took hold of eternal life and he kept the commandment. And because of what he has done, now the spirit dwells in you and you too can do it. This is who you are. And somehow, my second point is now just arriving. The God whom we are to behold. And this is the crescendo moment towards the end of this letter. So not just who we are to be, but the God we are to behold. Listen again in verse 15 and 16 and just watch how praise takes over Paul's writing which he will bring about at the proper time, the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. The eruption is beautiful. He's writing about the return of Christ. And then in thinking about the return of Christ, he begins to just think of all that God holds, including the timing of the return of Christ. And as he's considering this God, praise breaks in on him. He's writing. I I imagine if he was talking, it would just be, he's talking about the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he just says, can I take a moment and just sing? Can I just sing about the beauty of this God? Most of the problems that come, most of the problems that we have in life come from the fact that we don't think enough about our God. A.W. Tozer was correct when he said that what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And we can yes and amen that quote all day long and yet go throughout our days and not think anything of him. And so just let this doxology wash over you this morning. One of the greatest ways that you will faithfully fight the good fight of faith is by remembering often who your God is. And that's what Paul does. Paul says, verse 15, he rules over all. He's blessed. Psalm 1, blessed is the man. Happy is the man. Our God is a happy God. He's blessed. He is blessed. He's happy. He's happy about his rule. He's happy with his rule. You may be here this morning unhappy about how God is ruling. He is not. He is happy about his sovereign power. He rules over everything. He he knows what he's doing. He knows the best way to do it, and he's happy in it. And notice, he's the only one who's ruling. He is the blessed and only sovereign. The only sovereign. He rules over all. But he doesn't just rule over all. 
Look at what he says at the end of verse 15. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He is supreme in his authority. He is in perfect and complete control of everything. He's the ruler and the reigner over everything. And he does it all according to the counsel of his own will. The psalmist in Psalm chapter 2, he, all of these armies array in battle against the Lord's anointed. And you know what the Lord does? The Lord laughs. He says, all that the world has coming up against me is nothing. Not because all that the world has is nothing, but because he is everything. There's no threat to his rule or his power. He, if you were to line up every king that has ever been and every lord that has ever been, the one who is the king over all of them and the lord over all of them is God himself. Nothing is jeopardizing his will. The news that you get of the bad health report or when the officer shows up to deliver bad news to you or when your children say, I don't want your God or when you lose your job, do not believe that God has stopped ruling. There is no other king and no other one. There's no other thing. There's not a pandemic big enough that can thwart his plans. He's ruling over all. But he's also immortal and glorious. He alone has immortality. He's the only one who, in his nature, is their all existence and all life. There's no beginning to God. There's no end to God. He cannot forever die. He is the immortal God. And he lives in unapproachable light. I can, I can only imagine that Paul has in mind Exodus 33 and 34 as he writes to Timothy about being the man of God. Moses got a glimpse of, of the glory of God. He comes down and his face shone with the glory of God. And, and all of God's people couldn't even look upon his reflection. But now a new covenant has come and God has said, let light shine out of darkness. And he's caused the knowledge of his glory to shine in the face of Christ. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians, we who have trusted in Christ are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. Taking on the very likeness of Christ because he now lives in us and he is at work making us more and more like Christ. And one day we will see him with our very own eyes. This unapproachable light that we can't look upon now will be the house in which we live. We will share in his glory. No man has seen him, can see him, but there is coming a day where all of those who turn from their sin will see him. He will be our God. And when we consider that, there is no other adequate response than verse 16. Now to him, to that one, be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. This should change your life, let alone your day today. This changes how you live. It changes your security. All 
of your fears arise when you look at your problems and you neglect looking at this God. Alistair Begg said, those who fear God have nothing else to fear. But those who don't fear God become a slave to a hundred fears. Friends, are you ready to throw in the towel today? Have before you a vision of the majesty and the greatness and the glory and the immensity of God. Draw your strength from the one who is sovereign and who sits on the throne and who can do exceedingly abundantly more than we can ask or imagine. Church, this is how we persevere. This is how we will be carried to glory. You will fight for something in this life. Make sure it is the good fight of faith. And behold your God so that every day, literally, the desire, the ache, the yearning of your soul is now to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Let's pray.